Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshake. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners? Thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 118 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Today's podcast is sponsored by Barefoot Athletics. Here's the deal. If you want to lift big weights with great technique, you need the right shoe. And for those of you out there that like to lift in a flat sole shoe, like a Chuck Taylor, you need to check out the Ursus shoe by Barefoot Athletics. They have a super wide toe box that allows you to naturally splay your toes out and use your foot like it was designed. No more cramming your foot into a narrow toe box and smashing your foot into an unnatural position. If you want to enhance foot stability, your technique control, and eventually your performance, you need to check out this shoe. I've been lifting in them with many of my non-Olympic lifts for almost a year and a half now. I absolutely love them. I wear them every single day to work as well. They're super comfortable, and they're not going to break your bank like a lot of other shoes out there on the market. Now, if you go to barefootathletics.com, and that's B-E-A-R, like the animal, and use the code SQUATU, you can get 10% off your order. And that's for everything on their website, including the correct toe, toe spacers that I also wear every day. And you can learn about those more on my prior podcast, Why Your Shoes Suck, with Dr. Ray McClanahan. Now, before we get started, I also wanted to let you guys know that I recently came out with my very first lifting program that you can follow along with. I teamed up with two-time Olympian Chad Vaughn to feature our Back to Basics Olympic Weightlifting Program. There are two 13-week programs you can purchase that will help improve your technique, mobility, and build towards new PRs in the squat, snatch, and clean and jerk. Now, the program addresses the big lifts while also including a lot of movement and mobility prep, unlike many other programs, to help you make progress in your lifts while feeling good and staying injury-free at the same time. So if you check out marketplace.trainheroic.com and just search for the Back to Basics with Chad Vaughn and Squat University, you can see that there. I'll also link to it in the show notes. Now, on today's show, I got the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Ray McClanahan and talk all about heel pain that we commonly refer to as plantar fasciitis. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Dr. McClanahan, This is his second time on my show, and if you enjoyed today's show, I highly recommend going back and listening to our very first show on shoes and why the modern shoe that we wear from Nike, Adidas, Most Reeboks, Brooks, all these shoes that we think are so good for our feet are actually deforming our feet in a major cause for many injuries. So today we talk specifically about heel pain and a couple other injuries within the foot, as you'll find out, often caused because of the shoes you wear. And I'm going to link to that first podcast that we did together again in the show notes. So without further ado, let's get to today's show. Well, Ray, I just want to say thank you so much for jumping on the Squat University podcast. And first and foremost, I have to just say thank you for all the work that you do. Literally since the last time we spoke, I have gone down the rabbit hole for sure as far as foot biomechanics natural foot health understanding how shoes affect our feet our technique our performance especially when it comes to the movements within the weight room which is my big niche thing i know yours is running and i mean i wear my correct toes every single day i wear them i only squat barefoot now for any type of squat that i'm doing i'm always having my correct toes on um it's been one of those there's those few times i know in my current i know you've had them as well where you have that aha moment. And it's like you see the matrix. If you remember the movie back in the early 2000s, you can't unsee it. So really, once I found out just how bad our shoes were for us, how that changes the mechanics of the foot, everything else up the chain, I've had to just completely change the way I approach shoes, the way I approach my practice from the foot up. You know, it's, I, I just have to say thank you for the work that you've done because you've really enlightened me to a whole nother aspect of human mobility and movement that I did not know before. And it's, it's just a fun process of obviously I've been out now of physical therapy school for over a decade and I'm still learning new things. I, I love it. So I have to say thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, thank you for saying that, Aaron. I'm so glad you've gone down that rabbit hole. It's a pretty cool rabbit hole. It really is. <laughs> it, gets, 
it gets better the deeper you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Well, where we left off last time, and for anyone listening, uh, you have to go back and, and listen to our first podcast, which is just why your shoes suck was the, com- was the title of it. But we left off just understanding how the way the modern shoe is shaped is just so horrible for deforming our foot actively, unbeknownst to us. And, you know, from a young age, we're put into these shoes that automatically start changing the way our foot is shaped, which then hinders optimal function of the foot. And then obviously our mechanics all the way up the rest of the chain, whether you're walking, running, squatting, anything like that. Where I really wanted to dive in this time is into the pathology of what happens at the foot when we become injured down there. And I've gone you know, in depth in so many areas of the body, knee pain, back pain, hip pain, shoulder, elbow. Those are the big things I've talked about with other experts before, but I haven't really dove into the foot specifically. And when we think of foot pain, the biggest thing that pops into our head is plantar fasciitis. That's, you know, everyone that has heel pain. I think I looked up a stat. It's like, what, 80% of people will at one time in their life have some type of foot pain or it's, and it's, it's an incredibly high number. And I, I'd love to, to learn, you know, about you or about it from you, because in physical therapy school, we're always taught plantar fasciitis. It's an inflammatory issue. Um, you know, you need to get the ball out, roll it on your foot, do some soft tissue work, stretch, strengthen, and you should be fine. And yet I've tried that approach with patients that have come to me and I don't see great results from it. Some people they're like, well, the ball feels really good when I do it. But then, you know, the pain just comes back and I started going down the rabbit hole into the work that you've done with it. And it seems like that's completely uh, the different approach. There's a complete different approach to uh, the entire idea behind plantar fasciitis. So I'd love to know, like, when did you first learn that what we were doing as far as treating common foot pain, we'll just start with plantar fasciitis. Where did you find out like we were doing things completely wrong? Yeah, uh, in 2003, Aaron, is when I found out about it, um, which baffles me because what are we now, 2021? So 18 years ago, one of my medical school professors from Philadelphia, Harvey Lamont is his name, did a study where he took 50 of his patients who did the ball, they did orthotics, they did stretching, they did ice, they did anti-inflammatories, they got cortisone shots, they did all the stuff that you're familiar with. And to your earlier point, a lot of people still don't get better. You know, some people even get put in casts for a period of time, immobilize them. And I used to do that too. And I'd get people out of cast and I'd start moving them again. And they were still dysfunctional and still in pain. So uh, if you go through all the conventional conservative therapies for plantar fasciitis, what we used to call it, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't get well, then typically, in at least the podiatry community, you will be offered an operation. And typically that operation would be a plantar fasciectomy or a plantar fasciotomy. So essentially... We open up the inside part of your foot where most people will hurt first thing out of bed in the morning and we'll literally cut your plantar fascia ligament, the medial band of it off of your heel bone. And this is what I'm trained to do. I did a ton of it in my early career and sometimes it helps. Um, sometimes it doesn't afterwards. Sometimes those people are worse off because now you've destabilized their plantar fascia and a lot of those people will then get lateral overloading and cuboid syndrome and fifth metatarsal problems and so forth. But in 2003, my, uh, my professor, who I would also consider to be a mentor, because the thing I like about Dr. Lamont is um, he's got a, he, he will go down a rabbit hole too. He won't be satisfied with why are we not getting results with all the stuff that we're doing. So he did take 50 of his patients who failed all the conservative therapy, he took them to the operating room, and he did the plantar fascia release. But he also did something different during that operation that none of the rest of us had done. He took a piece of the plantar fascia ligament out of all of his 50 patients and his patients were across the spectrum. He had young people, old people, heavy people, light people, inactive, active. So it was a pretty broad spectrum of human individuals. Um, So he he harvested a piece of their plantar fascia ligament. And the thing that the audience should know too, Dr. Horshig, is that Dr. Lamont is also a world-renowned dermatopathologist. So if your audience is not familiar, that is an individual who has special skill sets at looking at tissue under the microscope to try to make the diagnosis. And so people will send him stuff from around the world and he's brilliant. Um, So he decided he'd take his 50 of his patients that failed all conservative therapy during the operative intervention. He took a piece of their plantar fascia ligament and he looked at it under the microscope. And 
this paper is on my website. Um, I, I give it out every day because I see plantar problems every day, like maybe you do. And um, it's also on the website. I forget the title right off the top of my head. I think it's called plantar fasciosis. Um, basically, he says there's no inflammation. And so that was, the, that was the conclusion of his paper. 50 of his patients had no inflammation. They had dead tissue. Wow. They had fasciosis. So that baffled all of us in podiatry for years. We'd sit around the sports seminars going, oh, how can, how can 35-year-old healthy runner lady have dead tissue when I can feel her pulses? Yeah. You know, and I document this with a patient. I feel their tibialis posterior. I feel their dorsalis pedis. I feel their perforating perineal. They've got circulatory inflow. Their foot's warm. The skin's healthy. They've got hair on their toes. So it's not anything wrong with their macro circulation, but when they put their foot into that tapered toe box, um, which I'll tell you about a study that happened last year that is fundamental to people understanding this, but when they put their healthy natural foot, which has circulation into a pointed fashion athletic shoe and go exercise, um, a certain subset of those people won't get nourishment. They won't get inflow and outflow to the medial calcaneal tubercle, or in other words, the first branch off the lateral plantar artery, they won't get blood in and they won't get blood out. So even a healthy person in that scenario is going to get a piece of fasciotic tissue. Mm. So in two, we've known this since 2003. So when I go to the seminars and my podiatry colleagues are saying plantar fasciitis, I say, why are you guys still using that term? It's like, and I get a variety of reasonings. Some people say, well, it's what the public's familiar with. So we're not going to confuse them further by calling it fasciosis. But frankly, the proper terminology should be fasciopathy or um, fasciosis. So mm. it's based on a, a histopathologic study of 50 people who didn't have any inflammation. Wow. So if you talk to Dr. Lamont or you talk to other people who have look, literally looked at all the literature, you will have inflammation for maybe a couple of weeks. Mm. But if you continue to put your forefoot, your toes into that pointed toe box, you're going to cut off at least at least enough of that blood supply to um, cause some of that tissue to start dying and becoming degenerative. So at um, like a macro level, there's enough blood flow to the entire foot. So it appears healthy. Like you mentioned, it's warm, the skin, everything looks good. There's hair on the toes, but at a micro level to this one very specific area of the heel where the pain develops, that's where in a majority of people, that's where the blood flow is, is temporarily cut off. Exactly right. A year ago in Seattle, a group of researchers, one of whom is a friend of mine, Dr. Daniel Hoops, did a study which is brilliant. I was thinking about doing a similar study with a Doppler, but they did the study with an ultrasound. Um, it's published in the Journal of Foot and Ankle Research, so you or your audience could access it if you wanted to. But essentially what they did is they took a large group of people and they literally put their big toe into shoe position. So tapered toe box shoe position, like we talked about at our last visit. And then they took a, an ultrasound machine and they measured the blood flow coming into the medial heel. And what they documented and what they published was 22.4% less blood flow to the medial heel. And so there is where you can take a young healthy person with good macro circulation, the foot looks fine, have them go run or lift weights in a pointed shoe. Mm -hmm. And they don't know this is happening because they don't think about their foot. They haven't gone down the rabbit hole that you and I have gone down. Um, and they won't even relate their pain in the morning to their footwear. Yeah. You know, they'll go to the podiatrist or somebody who will tell them they've got inflammation and they'll do all the stuff that we're trained to teach them to do. And some of that stuff is effective and helpful if you get the blood there. Yeah. In other words, there's nothing wrong with rolling on balls and there's nothing wrong with stretching. Although most people stretch this the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Most people stretch their toes towards their ankle instead of stretching their toes under their ball or their foot. Um, so sadly, a lot of people keep perpetuating the degenerative tissue and they keep over lengthening and overstretching their plantar fascia and their intrinsic muscles and they don't get better. Yeah. And then they let somebody cut them and about, I don't know, 10 to 15% of people who get cut for that never really recover, mm -hmm. which, you know, athlete to athlete, that's like, that's a tragedy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, so no, it's not an inflammatory problem anymore. So if anybody listening is going to any kind of a provider who is treating them as if they're inflamed, um, find another provider because I, I've seen too much of that, even in my own practice, even in my own early work, when I treated this as inflammatory and I don't think it's a surprise. This is one of the most common things any medical provider is going to see, and it's going to end up being chronic because maybe 
there's a lack of awareness about what really is required to get these people better. Hmm. Yeah, I, that study that you mentioned, I remember reading through it actually. And one of the interesting things was that when they took the big toe into that tapered toe box position, they instantly saw that decrease in blood flow in almost everyone. But they saw that in, in some people, they would actually get almost an overflow of blood. They would overcompensate to return blood flow to that area. So I guess that would be showing how that's why you could have a group of 100 people wear all the same tapered toe box, but yet some people never develop plantar issues because their body has sort of developed this compensation to get more blood flow to that area. Whereas there's a group of people that don't have that compensation. And those are the ones that eventually, because of the strangulation on the blood vessel, do end up with the development. Is that, I guess, an, an yeah. easy way to think about it? Absolutely right. That's how I think about it. Now that's how I look at it. Somehow some of those people are able to vasodilate yeah. and overcome the strangulation that's still occurring. So they're still strangulating it, but their body somehow has the ability to get that blood in there, even though they're still in the pointed toe box to your point, whereas some other people don't. Mm-hmm. And that brings up a whole nother layer of curiosity for me. It's like, how do we identify who can vasodilate and who's mm. not going to, you know, it's like, yeah. The thing about plantar, I said the other day to some patients, some people will spontaneously heal, even if they do the wrong stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, some people get plantar and they keep wearing pointed shoes, but then it goes away and comes back again in five years or whatever. So yeah. Here's just a testament to the beauty of our bodies and the uniqueness of each of us, I think, in terms of some of us can tolerate some things that other people can't. That's very but true. Yeah, it's, it, it's fascinating how some people can actually get the blood there, even though their big toe is still in the wrong position. Yeah. So someone has heel pain. They've been working through it for a couple of weeks. Nothing's getting better. You know, they're limping the first, you know, couple steps in the morning feels like a knife's being jammed into their heel. They come to you. What's, what's the first thing you do with them? So I always have the footwear conversation. Um, I always have that with everybody because even if I'm meeting with somebody who's going to be able to vasodilate, I want them to be able to prevent, prevent stuff down the road. I want them to have their best performance. I know they're, well, the other thing about planter is it's not just a circulatory issue, which we know that's a component of it, but the studies that have been done on people with chronic plantar, the MRI and ultrasound studies seem to indicate that people with chronic plantar also have weak plantar intrinsic muscles compared to people who don't have plantar or don't get it chronically. So we always talk about the footwear. Now that we've got that study, I pay particular attention to the toe box. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk about the footwear, we talk about the design features that have nothing to do with being healthy. And that is often a compelling part of the conversation and oftentimes new information for those people because they went to the shoe store and they heard all these good things about this shoe and we break it down for them and help them simply understand that they're wearing a fashion athletic shoe to exercise in. And once they know that they're, first of all, they're stunned by that because uh, they might even be a sponsored athlete. We see the Olympians here in Portland and they're, I have this conversation and they look at me and they say, well, how, how in the world could they pay me all this money to wear their product? And it's not a performance product. It's a fashion product. Yeah. That's literally the reality of it. So we point out the fact that it, the footwear is not healthy for them. It's not really even made for weightlifting or running. It's made to look good. Yeah. And most of my athletes care about looking good as a secondary element. They want to perform well first. If they can perform well and look good at the same time, that's a bonus. But when I share with them, the pointed toe box has nothing to do with, with function. That's the, that's the key feature. So we talk about footwear. We talk about the elevated heel, obviously, because you know, and your, maybe your audience is familiar with the concept that your calf muscle becomes your Achilles tendon, then crosses your heel and becomes your plantar fascia. Mm-hmm. So it's the same structure, even though we've changed the name. Um, and there's plenty written about tight calves contributing to plantar too. In fact, part of the recovery for a lot of my patients is not just get the blood flow there and get the arch muscle stronger. A big part of their recovery is also oftentimes mobilizing their calf, Mm. you know, um, so they get body work or they roll or they, you know, whatever they need to do to get their calf mobile. So we, we discourage them from wearing any kind of an elevated heel. We also have a study on our website, which is pretty compelling. They took two groups of ladies, one group functioned on the two inch heel, which is common for a lot of my lady runners coming in. They're running in a one and a half inch heel. They're wearing a two or three inch heel to work. And this is all day. 
-hmm. So that study showed when they compared the ladies in the two inch heel group compared to the ladies that wear a flat shoe or go barefoot, the two inch heel group gets 14% shorter in their calf muscles. So wow. if it was one or 2%, I wouldn't be all that concerned about it, but just like 22% of the blood flow gets reduced by the tapering toe box, 14% shortening from an elevated heel. So we talk about the elevated heel, we talk about the tapering toe box for sure, but we also talk about the rigid toe spring. Mm. In other words, for your audience members, that's where if you look at a shoe on the, on the sh store wall, you're gonna notice that from the ball of the foot to, to the ends of the toes, most shoes will go up about 20, 25 degrees. Mm -hmm. And this has been that way for 40 years or so. So I'm careful to point out what Dr. Hoffman pointed out in 1905, in industrialized societies where we wear those shoes with elevated heels and toe springs, eventually we can take our shoes off and our foot will look like that. So in other words, when I take my patient's shoes off and I set them up in the treatment table, almost universally, most of those people will have what I call extensor dominance. Mm. So their extensor tendons to the toes will be tight. And you can see that because their extensor tendons will pop out of their skin. Wow. And I, I share with them that I grew up in Africa where my friends didn't own shoes. So they don't, their feet don't look like our feet, but in Canada and in, in Europe, some parts of Asia, America, for sure, over the course of our lifetime, our, our feet take on that characteristic. So if you can conceptualize the calf muscles becoming short and tight, pulling the calcaneus bone uh, from the back of the foot, then you conceptualize the extensor tendons on the front of the calf, pulling the toes up in the air. What that, what that does is it overstretches, <clears throat> excuse me, the plantar fascia ligament, but it also overstretches the plantar intrinsic muscles. And there's four layers of them. There's 24 of them. You're familiar with the anatomy. The problem is you would also know from your work that if you over lengthen a muscle beyond its length to tension relationship, it can't contract. Yeah. So it will, it will be dominated by its, by its uh, antagonistic group. So in this case, um, those two features in footwear also contribute to plantar. So it's not just a blood flow issue. Like I mentioned, it's a weakness issue. So we, we focus on the heel. We focus on the toe spring. We focus on the taper. We focus on torsional rigidity. In other words, the podiatry community is taught that you want a stiff shoe. Mm -hmm. You want a rigid shank. You don't want a shoe that bends at all. And the doctor that came up with this about 20 years ago didn't do any research. He just came out with a three-point criteria that he started shouting at the sports seminars and passing out to the physical therapists and the athletic trainers and the podiatrists. Next thing you know, everybody's saying torsional rigidity, stable heel counter only bends at the ball of the foot. But there's no science behind that, just like there's no science behind a lot of the things that we say to people, including plantar fasciitis. You know, there's mm -hmm. nothing with any information. So we cover the footwear first. And quite frankly, oftentimes that's all that's required is to cover the footwear, get people out of their deforming, rigid fashion athletic shoes and mobilize their foot a little bit. Uh, I start people doing a little bit of barefoot walking in their home. And as they get stronger, their muscles get stronger, their skin gets stronger. I start having them go outside and going barefoot. Hmm. We certainly roll on the balls. Um, I teach them to critically examine what, what kind of stretching exercises they're doing. Because if you go online or you talk to most of our colleagues, even to this day, uh, well, I talked to a lady on, on Tuesday who was told that her plantar fascia is tight and that's why she needs to stretch it. And that's not true. Um, the plantar fascia actually is over lengthened in most footwear. Hmm. For it to be tight, your heel would have to be closer to your toes your origin to insertion would have to be close together, but that's not the case. When you lift the heel and you lift the toes, we do the opposite, we over lengthen it. Yeah. So the idea that we wanna keep stretching an already over lengthened plantar fascia doesn't make medical sense. And the other thing that I reason with my patient population is I don't know of any other medical specialty that stretches ligaments. You know, ligaments are bone to bone and they're for structural integrity. So yeah. um, I get people doing what I call the toe extensor stretch. And I've got a video on our website in case you want to link it for your yeah, audience. I can, I can link that in the, uh, the show notes of this. Awesome. And then uh, a very compelling thing will happen with those people that I prepare them for prior to beginning their rehab. I tell them that if they truly have plantar fasciosis and my assumption about their weakness and lack of blood flow is correct, as soon as they start doing that toe extensor stretch, they'll get a cramp in their plantar intrinsics. Oh. 
And yeah. it's almost universal. It's almost 99% of them. So I prepare them ahead of time because if I don't, they'll come back for their follow-up and I'll, I'll check off the boxes. Have you changed your shoes? Are you wearing your toe separator? Have you done your toe extensor stretch? And if I don't prepare them, a lot of them will say, well, I started doing my toe extensor stretch, but then I started getting cramping in my arch. And that's a, in my opinion, that's a direct correlation to the weakness that we want to address. So we address the footwear, we, we discourage the wrong kind of stretching. We encourage the toe extensor stretch. I'm a huge fan of metatarsal pads because mm. they, will, they will cause a shortening of the length to tension relationship, the plantar intrinsics. Um, I'm a big fan of anything that will beat up that fasciotic tissue. So, so you still like you, rolling on the ball then too, correct? Oh yeah. Okay. So, yeah, golf balls, these little half domes, these spiked balls, um, whatever people choose to do, I'm a huge fan of that because the way I look at it is anything that we can do to bring blood to the fasciotic tissue to disrupt that dead tissue and flush it out of there is great. So I encourage my folks to see my physical therapy colleagues for the A-STEM, my chiropractic colleagues for the grasp and for the, mm -hmm. you know, my Chinese doctors use the Gua Sha. Um, I use Shockwave okay. recently. You know, so I try to get in there and bust that stuff up. Um, I also am a huge fan of regenerative injection therapy. So all this stuff is mm. trying to promote inflammation to try to clean out that dead tissue. But here's also where I will occasionally fall back on my Western medical training. I love cortisone for this problem. Mm. And I'm not, I don't love cortisone for hardly any other thing other than maybe neuroma, which we could also talk about and maybe like a ganglion cyst. Yeah. But the way I look at fasciotic tissue, as you know, as a doc, cortisone is really good at weakening tissues, mm -hmm. you know, so you or I would never put it in somebody's Achilles tendon because in fact, that's how I first learned about the dangers of cortisone. I did a medical review on one of my attending doctors was being called as an expert witness on a patient who did have cortisone put into their Achilles tendons and they ruptured. Oh, so wow. there, yeah. So there's instances where it's absolutely medical malpractice, but in the case of fasciosis, and that's the other thing too, I can usually feel that fasciotic tissue during the exam, hmm. you know, um, and I pointed out to the patient and I have them compare it to their other foot. It, the, the problematic foot is, is thicker. It's more full. I can feel those, you know, those crunchy nodules there. So um, I like prolotherapy. I like platelet-rich plasma, I like stem cells, but I, I also like cortisone in one of two situations. So if they come in and they're five or more at a 10, on a 10 scale, Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give them cortisone. The other reason why I like cortisone is a lot of these people, especially in my patient population of runners, hikers, and walkers, they'll limp from yeah. this. And next thing you know it, um, and a lot of them won't even be able to control it. It's sort of an involuntary thing. And maybe their training partner or their spouse will say, why are you walking weird on your foot? Or why are you running to, on the outside of your foot? Um, you would probably have plenty of patient experiences of people that are compensating their gait and then will create a whole new problem. Yeah. At any joint level, it's anybody's guess, but those are the people that I will recommend we get them out of their pain cycle so they don't create more damage. But the problem there is you can also imagine we have to have the conversation with them about waking up the next day and their pain might be completely gone. Don't go run 20 miles. <laughs> yeah. So my you have my to address the why as well. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I teach them that it's, yeah, the pain's gone, but you also have to realize you've got to progressively adapt back to your, back to your progressive load uh, because if they don't, um, you're probably also familiar with the studies on adaptation and how much we can do week to week before we break down. Yeah. <clears throat> um, let's see beyond that. What else do we do? I have a couple of taping techniques that work really good. I've got videos on the website and what I like about that is I teach them how to do it. I send the supplies home with them. I'd show them how to do it one time and then they do it. It oftentimes will enable them to go run or lift or, you know, but ride their bike with a lot more comfort until their body actually gets the blood in there until their arch muscles get strong enough. But that's typically how I'll treat it. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else that we would do for that. Um, but no, it usually, most of those people within five to six weeks, they'll start turning the corner. Hmm. And the cool thing about addressing it this way, we're actually addressing the cause. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about that is 
I, it's a pretty tight local community here. We, a lot of us train on the same trails. A lot of us run the same races. And so I'll run into these people in the future and, and I'll ask them how they're doing. And, and the cool thing about treating it this way is it's not the chronic cyclic nature of previous planter experiences where people will feel better for a while and, and they'll have another bout in two to three years and they'll suffer and then they'll get better and have another bout. You know, I literally have a Kleenex box in my treatment room because people weep over this problem, you know, grown men, strong men, athletes cry in my office because they haven't been able to exercise and they're depressed and they're, who knows, maybe they're overeating or maybe they're drinking too much or whatever. It, it disrupts people's lives. So for sure, and it not, it's not just athletics. I mean, it's, people lose work hours over this. People can't play with their kids and so forth. So I'm really excited to talk about this because if people can get the proper information, this is not something they have to deal with for years and years and years. Yeah. I remember looking at a specific research article. I can't remember the, the name doesn't come to mind right now, but they looked at the uh, how chronic plantar fasciitis has been amongst populations. And they say that it was a crazy amount. It was like 40% or so of people still had symptoms 15 years later after their initial diagnosis. So yeah, I mean, that's it makes sense that we just try to treat the symptoms nowadays and, you know, help you feel better and then stick you right back in a shoe often that is. So you would say that the main cause then therefore of the majority of people who have plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciosis, as we know now is just the tapered toe box, heel elevated, uh, toe spring like shoe. I sure think so because, um, most of the time I don't treat these people. Most of the time I don't give them cortisone. Most of the time I spend an hour talking about the footwear. I might tape them, like I said, but um, if they change their footwear and give it some time and get the blood there, I generally don't ever do anything else. So yeah, I do think it, it truly is a footwear. However, um, if we talk about the footwear and they're very faithful in getting into new footwear and slowly transitioning, which is another key feature, as you know, yeah. Um, and they're still not well, then I put my thinking cap on and I start to wonder about some of the rare things that do occur. Um, and by the way, I should say for you and your audience members, you may already be familiar with this. <clears throat> Bilateral plantar fasciosis is a rare entity. So mm. if somebody comes in and sees me and they say, both of my heels are hurting first thing out of bed in the morning, um, then I start wondering if they have autoimmunity, if they have connective tissue problems. I've had people have Lyme disease. I had a young lady not long ago, had, um, she had urinary tract infections and she took a fluoroquinolone antibiotic, which is known to hamper healing of tendon and ligament. And I saw her about five times. I usually see people one time, maybe two times, they're better. And like I said a moment ago, I know they're better because I see them somewhere else and they're like, yeah, I'm better. But this particular lady came five times and on the fifth visit, she brought her husband with her who was also a physician. And we're just troubleshooting and talking through this. And at, after about 45 minutes of like scratching our heads and figuring out what we're going to try next, her husband looked at her and said, honey, did you tell Dr. McClanahan about your antibiotic? And she hadn't because, you know, in America, we compartmentalize our medicine. We think of the podiatrist sure. as the foot guy and the chiropractor as the back guy and so forth. But essentially, she had taken multiple doses of a fluoroquinolone and she did have bilateral plantar. And all she needed was that antibiotic to run its course and get out of her system. And she did get well. Wow. But essentially, there are the outliers. And it's not all plantar fasciosis either. There's like a Baxter's neuritis that can occur there. Occasionally, people will have a bursitis, which will act a little bit differently than plantar fasciosis will. I've also had the occasional patient who has plantar fasciosis and bursitis concurrently. Um, but over, yeah, to your point, Dr. Horshig, uh, overwhelmingly, these people need footwear education. And when we provide that and they're faithful with that, they get better, which also brings up another point. We screen our patients. We ask them, are you willing to change your footwear? Because if they're not, then they, they probably won't get better and they'll probably run the cyclical course of getting treatment that will be temporary or ineffective. I used to accept everybody into the practice. If they're in pain, I'm going to try to help them. But I discovered that after many years of spending an hour talking to the new patient about the footwear and why they might not want to stretch their toes towards their ankle and why they don't want to take anti-inflammatories and ice their foot and all this stuff, 
I would have a certain subset of patients, usually a young woman, fashionably oriented, maybe a professional business lady. I would show her the shoes that she needs to wear for recovery. And oftentimes she would look at me and literally would say, I will never wear a shoe like that. And that this is, I think, the biggest obstacle we have in our country to having healthy feet as athletes is we need to teach our athletes that what they're putting on isn't for function or performance. It's for fashion. Yeah. And, and I talk about this all day, every day, and it's a compelling conversation, but it also usually results in a lot of confusion from the patient, especially the patient that's being paid a lot of money by my companies here in my community that, that are sponsoring them to, to represent their brand. They're dumbfounded when I tell them that it's for fashion. But I do also tell them that I know the designers of their companies and I meet with them and I tell them this, they know this and they say to me, nobody wants to wear a shoe that looks like a human foot. Yeah. So it's this, it's this cycle of misinformation that keeps the athletes injured and they don't know they're injured because of their footwear. They think their footwear is the best they could possibly have for their sport. Yeah. Um, but to your point, yeah, it's mostly education and, um, it's super gratifying when the patient takes it seriously because they will get well and they will get well permanently. Yeah. I've had some really interesting conversations just over social media, just posts that I've put up recently on education on foot health. And it, it's really, that's probably some of the posts that have some of the most engagement is because people are so blown away when you say, Hey, these big major brands that supposedly are putting billions and billions of dollars into their, you know, research and development it's straight for the design of a shoe that you will buy, not for something that is designed to help your foot function as good as possible. And I even had a conversation with someone who is a designer for one of these major shoe brands who said once he realized this and was uh, under the impression finally that what he was designing was being harmful to the foot, he's like, I had to retire. He's like, I could not continue my job knowing that the design of the shoes that I'm making are harming the athlete's foot that I'm putting it into and that people just won't, they won't hear it because they're not going to be able to sell a foot shaped shoe, which I think really, and that's really where I'm trying to take a lot of my content now is I'm going to, I want people to know, and I think athletes are smart enough nowadays. A lot of them are becoming to that point where they're like, if I can tell you and educate you and empower you to know why it's so important to have a foot-shaped shoe, you're going to make a, a number of them, I think we'll start making better decisions. Once we start being like, hey, here are the better options. And we're seeing it, you know, with uh, um, the, the Ursus shoe by Barefoot Athletics. I mean, those things are flying off the shelf now. So the powerlifting community is, is adopting that. And hopefully one day we're going to see a wide toe box weightlifting shoe. Obviously the, uh, the raised heel is something I don't want people to be in all the time, but to be able to have a wide toe box shoe for the sport of weightlifting, I think is going to be a game changer. Um, and just allowing people to have that more natural foot shape within uh, while they are practicing their sport. Absolutely agree. Yeah. I had a buddy that uh, it's an interesting story since he was a little kid, his lifelong dream was to uh, work on the Nike Jordan project. Mm. And so he went to school and got his design degree and actually got on the Nike Jordan project. But he and I spent a lot of time together. He spent time shadowing my practice. And as soon as he saw it, it wasn't all about fashion. He and I actually made prototypes. He used to work for Nike. So we made prototypes of basketball shoes that were foot shaped and it got shot down. Um, so he quit. And now he and I are work, we're making 3D printed shoes and we're testing prototypes right now. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, the revolution really is coming basically, huh? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, I've been waiting for this for 20 years. So it's yeah. a good time in my life to finally see it happening. Yeah. All right. So, so pulling back to some of the things you said earlier, if someone has bilateral plantar heel pain, it is often something they need to go get checked out by a medical physician, podiatrist, basically go, go get it checked out. Don't try to solve it on your own kind of thing. Um, it's interesting though, that like we mentioned, you would develop plantar fasciosis in one foot, yet your feet are likely you're using the exact same shoe on both feet. So potentially you're getting that same blood flow cutoff on both feet, yet only one foot becomes symptomatic. Do you see people, will those that have tried to do the traditional methods of treatment that have been 
uh, not helpful? Do you see that people will develop maybe right-sided plantar heel pain for a couple of years and then they get left or sort of it flip-flops at all? In my experience, it's usually on the longer foot. Mm. So we're really careful in our clinic to look at feet and look at how they match the sock liner that comes out of the shoes. We take a picture of everybody and we have been for probably 12 years now. We're going to publish this because podiatrists are not taught that shoes are part of the problem, believe it or not. Um, I had to learn that from Dr. Rossi and his stuff is on my website. If you want to look at that or your audience wants to look at that. Mm -hmm. But as we've looked at this very carefully over the years, we've noticed that not only um, are people getting plantar in the longer foot and think of it this way, the longer foot has more of the toes in the taper part of the toe box. So they're getting more strangulation on that longer foot. We also typically see bunions and plantar fasciosis as cousins. Mm. We see it all the time. So that, and that substantiates what they proved in that study a year ago. So they purposefully put people's toes into a bunion configuration for the ultrasound study. Um, but I see people coming into my clinic with a bunion only on one foot. And they ask me, why do I only have this on one foot? Mm. And certainly it's not just at the level of the foot. And certainly it's not just footwear. You know, you've studied human bodies too. And you would probably agree that the closer we look at a human, the more we realize they're asymmetric in multiple regions. So mm -hmm. I'm careful not to lead people to believe that they're, foot problem is only related to their shoe. I think overwhelming of the shoe is probably the most important feature, but you know, if we look at like dominance of their body, previous injury patterns, weakness, contractures on certain sides of the body, I think we start to realize that it's probably multiple things playing into that. But as I've looked at plantar, as I've looked at bunions, especially when they're unilateral, usually the longer foot gets the bunion and the longer foot gets the plantar. Um, and when people do get repeat episodes of plantar, in my experience, it's usually the same foot. But again, since I've been treating this as a circulatory problem and as a weakness problem, it's rare that I see people again for plantar. So we'll get their plantar better. And if I see them again, usually it's for a separate problem. And a lot of times I'll have their old chart. And so I'll look in the chart and I'll ask them, it's like, how's your plantar? And they'll say, oh, it's, it's better. I've never had a problem since. So, but I think it's and, it's, and it's not just the taper of the toe box either, Dr. Horshig, it's also the toe spring. Mm -hmm. So that longer yeah. foot is getting more toe spring, more taper. So they're getting more strangulation and more weakness. Uh, at least that's how I conceptualize it. Yeah. Well, and it seems like you said a, a majority of your patients within a couple weeks of changing their footwear wearing their correct toes, obviously, to help improve their, their position of their foot, performing, you know, some soft tissue smashing of the, the bottom of the foot with a ball, doing some light calf stretching or ankle mobilization, depending on uh, whether or not they have that associated, which most people could just do a simple, you know, closed chain ankle mobility test to see if they fit into within that need, uh, stretch the extensors of the toes rather than doing a lot of the plantar fascial stretch. And just being barefoot more often within a couple of weeks, most people are feeling significantly better, correct? They are. In fact, I, I usually see that turnaround happening within four to five weeks, mm -hmm. which is why I'll tell the patient, let's set you back up for four to five weeks. And if you're not sense. better, come back and then we're going to do some imaging or we're going to do some additional studies. Um, but yeah, usually by that time period, they're starting to have a couple of better days. And the other weird thing about plantar that I seem to have seen in my 30 years is once people start to get a little bit of recovery, they'll go on to get better. Hmm. It's the people that I see them four to five weeks later and nothing has changed. Then I'm starting to get a little bit curious as if they do have some other kind of entity going on. But yeah, um, and that baffles people who have had it for years when I tell them, yeah, in the next couple of weeks, things are going to start to turn around there. A lot of them are in disbelief. Um, yeah. And I'm careful not to give false hope to people either, especially athletes. And, but the reality is once you start getting blood there and, and focusing on what the true problem is, it does get better. Yeah. I, I did want to ask a follow-up question on the cortisone, because I remember in that Harvey Lamont study that he did, he did mention, I think in the end, how there had been a few uh, research articles showing uh, failure within or a rupture in the plantar uh, fascial ligament, I believe, after people who had had numerous cortisone shots. I'm, I'm guessing the reason is because we were doing the traditional medical route of, oh, it hurts. Let me give you a cortisone shot, stick you right back in your shoe, 
walk, 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 you know, six weeks later, come back, still hurts another cortisone shot. I'm guessing that's the reason why they did see those ruptures is because they were overusing it and not treating the why at all. I sure think so. In fact, I saw a lady on Tuesday who did rupture her plantar after too much cortisone. So it is a well-known um, concern and a well-known side effect. I was trained to give a series of cortisone for this problem. So give a shot seven to 10 days later, bring people back, give another shot. And the thinking is you can give probably three shots a year. Um, but ironically, somehow in my practice, all the cortisone that I've given over the years, I've never seen a rupture from cortisone that I've given. Um, mm. I did see this lady on Tuesday that ruptured her lateral plantar because her doctor gave her two injections at the same time. And he told her you might get a rupture and she did get a rupture. Mm. Interestingly, I have ruptured my own plantar, but it didn't have anything to do with cortisone. So I'm familiar with the injury. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you, if you weaken already weakened tissue and don't deliver blood and keep yanking on it, sure, you, you can do more damage. Um, and you think about the stretching of the toes upwards, you think about the night splints that people wear, you know, that's so, another one. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, or I should say it does make sense that people would have ruptures from that. So, uh, and that's where, if we do use cortisone, we're very careful not to, you know, not to perpetuate the old ways. Um, and in that scenario, I think cortisone is absolutely safe. So basically as long as we're using it as a way to, uh, be an adjunct to our holistic way of treating and not as the sole way of just trying to treat the symptoms, it has its place in a, a small percentage of people. It sure does. Um, I used to, before I knew this stuff, I used to give cortisone and then I'd put people in boots or I'd put them in a night splint and I'd rest them for a while. And then we'd start moving them again. And most of the time um, it didn't fix anything. Mm -hmm. Most of the time their pain would still be there. Um, and that's what was so frustrating for so many of us. And I think that's why Dr. Lamont was thinking a little bit deeper about well, why is this happening? You know, because I've looked at some studies that seem to indicate that plantar might be the most common thing that presents to many providers offices when it comes to foot and ankle problems. Yeah. Now, as far as the foot and different pathologies that you commonly see, would you say that heel pain, plantar fasciosis, as we now know, is, is probably one of the most common? I know obviously we hear of, of issues with uh, like hammer toes and, and things like Morton's neuroma. Are, are there any specific other injuries that we, you would say are, are some of the most common you run into? Yeah, um, I would say neuroma is super common. Um, and this is also why the very beginning thing that we talk about with the patients is the shoes always, because it seems like almost everything I treat at least has a relationship to the shoe, if not caused by the shoe. So neuromas are a very common one. When the patient comes in for the first visit, we pull the sock liner out of their shoe. And we take a picture of their foot on top of it. 10% of the people that I see and have seen since I've been looking at this will fit footwear off the shelf, 10%. They have a super narrow foot. 90%, which I was blown away when I first read Dr. Rossi and I started looking at this, I was working for an orthotics lab. So I started putting my patient's feet on top of the orthotics that I made and 90% were too narrow. So neuromas are a super common one. And it's not just a tapering toe box, the heel and the toe spring also contribute to the neuroma. Mm -hmm. See a lot of hammer toes. Um, and interestingly, most of these things are cumulative. So they're, we're not seeing them typically in the six-year-old child. We're seeing them progressively, the older these people get because they're spending more time in these deforming footwear features. Mm -hmm. So neuroma is a common one. Hammer toes are a common one. Um, heel pain and not just plantar, the bursitis that we talked about, the neuralgia that we talked about. We see people with um, pain on the back of their heel too. And this is an interesting story. Um, my first injury in college was I got a bad, painful red bump on the back of my right heel. And I went to the training room. I got a bunch of Advil. I iced it a lot, did ultrasound on it, didn't get better. Trainer took me to the orthopedic doctor. I got cortisone, didn't help. I got a second cortisone, didn't help. I now know why it didn't help. But the third time I went back to the orthopedic doctor, he's like, well, we need to cut your heel bone off and release your plantar fashion. I freaked out and I talked to my coach. I said, coach, I'm really worried. I don't want to have that operation. He's like, okay, we'll redshirt you this year. So I'm sitting in my dorm room on a Saturday and my team is off at North Carolina state and I'm kind of sitting there sulking and I happened to be looking in my closet where I had all my running shoes lined up. And I happened to notice that the heel counter portion of all of my right running shoes, the material was completely worn away. Mm. And 
I happened to pull out one of my shoes and I was wearing size nine back then, I'm a 12. And I happened to notice that where my material was being worn away was exactly where I had this red hot bump on the back of my heel. Mm. And so then I was like, well, wait a minute. So I put the shoe on and I happened to notice that the plastic heel counter inside of the shoe was rubbing on my sural nerve on the back of my heel and creating a bursa. So I wasn't even a podiatrist at the time, but I remember being dumbfounded that the doctor didn't even look at my shoes, thought this was a foot problem, was going to cut my heel. This is wow. the same thinking that is employed today, Aaron. So, yeah. um, so back of the heel problem, we call that a pump bump. Sometimes it's called a Hagelin's deformity. So we see some of that. Um, let's see, what else do we see? We do and see what, some what would What would be your treatment for that other than obviously just trying to get into a, a correctly fitting shoe? Yeah, always get the pressure away. The problem with nerve tissue you might uh, agree with is once the nerve is irritated, it's a little bit different than say your plantar fascia or muscle. In my experience, once a nerve is irritated, it could take months, it could take upwards of a year of yeah. getting everything right for that nerve to finally calm down. So, but the hallmark for that is stop rubbing on it. Mm. So we get people in the backless shoes. I, I numb it out for them. So I use a topical local anesthetic so that they okay. can train. Um, I use a mixture of lidocaine and prilocaine. We put some cream on there. We cover it with saran wrap, let it sit for 30 minutes. The sural nerve goes numb. Um, that way they can go exercise comfortably while it's healing. Mm. Um, and then I, I have them look at all their shoes in their closet. Cause oftentimes this is not just their athletic shoes. This is their day-to-day -day work shoe. This is men too. Yeah. Um, so we get, what I did when I had this is I cut a hole in the back of my trainers and my racers and oh, wow. immediately the pressure was gone. Once the pressure is off and give it time, the nerve eventually realizes it's not getting beat up anymore and it doesn't have to let us know and it will heal. Yeah. That's awesome. You were saying there was a couple other ones that are most, uh, that are still very common that you'll see. Yeah. Um, we treat a fair number of warts. We see ingrown toenails. Um, and another interesting story, I've got two teenage daughters and my younger daughter decided about six years ago, she wanted to play soccer. And mm. up until that point, we had kept her feet really natural and healthy. She only wore healthy shoes. Her feet at that point were still natural and, and naturally foot shaped. But, um, we, we bought her a, a pair of Nikes. We bought her a pair of Adidas. We bought them a little bit too long to get a little bit more width. But within a week or two, she had ingrown toenails on both of her big toes. Mm. And I'm trained, as most podiatrists are trained, to tell my daughter, you're cutting your toenails wrong. That's why you got this ingrown toenail. Yeah. And, um, but that doesn't make sense. We're we're, I'm told to tell people, cut your toenails straight across. Don't round them. Mm. But... I've thought about this a lot over the years. We don't cut our fingernails straight across and we don't get ingrown fingernails. And it's, it's clear we don't get ingrown fingernails because there's no external deforming force. So my daughter and I did a video on our driveway where we showed her pointed soccer shoes. We showed how they don't fit her based on the sock liner test. We showed her ingrown toenails on both of her big toes. And so her, the whole goal was to make a video for shoe designers because she said, daddy, why, why do they make shoes like that? Why, why did they get this ingrown toenail? You mm -hmm. know? So that's a common one too. And there's a really simple operation that's very nicely reimbursable that a lot of young people are getting done because their shoes don't fit them. You know? so, yeah. so that's a common one. See a good bit of warts. Um, what else? Every once in a while, we see something weird and rare, like a cancer, like a melanoma, mm. or, you know, like a soft tissue cancer. I saw one about a month ago. Um, lots of corns, lots of calluses. Um, and a lot of these people have had them for years. In fact, my, one of my favorite things to do is to take a lady who's in her sixth or seventh decade, who's had calluses on the bottom of her feet for 30 years and tell her these can go away. And she, she'll be curious and oftentimes surprised when I say that after she's had them for 30 years and is used to going to the podiatrist every two months to have them carved out of there. Mm -hmm. But again, if you remove the pressure, things will heal. Yeah. You know, so that's super common and that's super gratifying because as, as gratifying as it is for some people to build up a big practice and have people coming back over and over and over, my goal is to cure people you know, I love and empower that. them to like take care of themselves. And so they don't have to keep yes. coming back. Um, so those are the typical, uh, probably eight to 10 things that I see 
almost all day, every day with the occasional outlier. Yeah. Okay. Now, obviously all this is related mostly or a lot of it to the shoes on our feet. And a lot of people listening to this probably hopefully have seen a lot of the stuff that I've been putting out there and sharing other practitioner stuff, such as yourself, as far as, you know, the different shoes that are available nowadays. Um, and there's probably gonna be some people that are still in the Nikes, the Adidas, the Reeboks that are way too narrow, but they don't necessarily know how to transition into a shoe like that. Because, you know, as we know, a lot of athletes, they hear one thing is good and they're just going to go balls to the wall to it, you know? So they will go and they'll buy the, the Vivo barefoot. They'll go buy the Ursus and then just start going crazy. And then their feet start hurting a little bit because they made the transition too fast for someone who has never been in uh, a natural style shoe and maybe doesn't even like walking barefoot that much. So we know that they probably have a little bit of a weaker foot. What is a simple way to transition from that higher heeled Nike? And, and most people even, I think just telling them that like your Nike Air Max, that's a high heeled shoe. They don't even realize that the, the padding in there is offsetting. It's just like wearing a high heel. It just doesn't look like it because it's got a pad. But how, how can they transition? Is there a, a specific protocol that you like to use or anything like that to help them ease into a natural style shoe that's completely flat? Yeah, um, there's not a specific protocol. There's gross generalizations that we try to apply because as you can imagine, every single person's at a different place on the spectrum in terms of yeah. how much barefoot activity they've done, how old they are, how weak they are, what kind of footwear they wear. Um, so I generally speak in broad parameters based on all those variables. Um, and this probably is the second most important thing to cover very carefully, because to your point, when the book Born to Run came out about 10 years ago, everybody did go, or not everybody, a lot of people did go balls to the wall. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my Nikes and my Adidas and my Reeboks are, are fashionable and they're not healthy and they're not performance. So they were like, crap, put those away and like go barefoot all of a sudden. But to your earlier point, um, even a healthy person will get injured pretty quickly if they do that. So um, what we encourage very beginning is just to start taking your shoes off at home. You'd be surprised or not, maybe, um, if your patients are like my patients, how many people wear their shoes in their house? You know, and um, so the very first thing I, well, and a lot of podiatrists tell them to, I was trained to tell people, once I make this orthotic for you, you're going to have it in your shoe by your bed. So when you get out of bed in the morning, you're going to put your shoes on and that's what you're going to spend the rest of your life in. So the first thing we challenge people to do is just a little bit of barefooting. And um, even that for a lot of people can be a challenge if they haven't done it. So mm -hmm. the hallmark, even though we can't give a, a specific transition protocol, the hallmark is slow. Yeah. You know, the hallmark is just way less than what you think you should. In fact, um, I hang out with the people who wrote the Barefoot books and I listen to them and their wisdom. And Michael Sandler and Jessica Sandler, who wrote Barefoot Walking, Barefoot Running, have learned over their uh, many years of doing this that probably the very first day people shouldn't do any more than 200 yards wow. you know, of barefoot, which doesn't sound like a lot. But Michael has taught me that people will be able to do a lot more than, than that on the first day. And it might not hurt them in that first episode, but when they're done, it will hurt and they'll realize they did too much. So um, it takes into consideration, have they been doing any barefoot activity? Uh, like for instance, some people grew up barefoot, you know, and when they were kids, so they're way ahead of the game. Some people already go barefoot in their home. It's only when they're out and about, they have shoes on. So they're also gonna be a little bit ahead of the game, but it, essentially it's starting to engage their world barefoot. And first off, that's in their home. That's a controlled environment. But I also then recommend them to go outside. Mm -hmm. um, I run barefoot in my neighborhood on my sidewalks. Um, but I've been preparing to do this for years, you know. Yeah. So I don't go and suddenly do that. So the next thing I ask them to do is start going outside and just engaging controlled surfaces little bit by little bit. Because one of the cool things that will happen is not just the intrinsic arch muscles get stronger. Our skin on the bottom of our feet gets thicker and tougher, too. And I also saw this in Africa where my friends didn't own shoes. We played soccer on gravel and they sprinted across gravel in their bare feet because yeah. they, they were strong. Crazy. You know? So next thing we do is we address the foot where we get the foot shaped shoes. And then I usually have people do 20 to 30 minutes in their, in their foot shaped shoe the first day if their body accepts that. Mm -hmm. And I tell them you don't ever want to limp 
You don't want to be in pain. None of the, there's no no pain, no gain is not to be employed in this in this in this uh, process because that will actually set people back. And then um, if they do it thoughtfully, they're able to slowly wean out of foot shaped shoes, but you also have to consider the people that are in custom orthotics. So that's a whole nother layer of the transition. So if the pe people are in arch supports, footbeds or orthotics, I get them doing a little bit of barefoot. Then the first thing we do is we start weaning them off of the structure that's inside of their shoe. And then secondarily, then we start weaning them off of that shoe. So most of my folks are runners, as I shared. So the way we'd have them do it is one of two ways. They either start their run in their foot shaped shoe and warm up that way for maybe a quarter mile or half a mile, then finish the rest of their run in their conventional shoes or start their run in their conventional shoe. And when they're warmed up and they're cooling down, then they'll put on their new natural foot shaped shoes. And really the key is not to rush it, not to do too much too soon and, and to pay attention to their body. So if they're hurting when they're doing it, I discourage that. If they're limping, for sure, I discourage that. And then if they wake up the next day and they're still in pain, they probably did a little bit too much. We do have some videos. We do have some um, blog posts and so forth where we try to touch on these elements of transition. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad we're talking about this, Dr. Horsher, because I think that's the second most common reason why people come back and see me is they um, do too much of a good thing too soon. And, and set themselves back there. So it's really critical to take that process really slowly. Yeah, definitely. I Just a quick story before we end. I had a, a similar patient. He was a runner, um, worked at New Balance. And um, he was telling me about how he was listening to all our prior podcasts and reading all the different things. And I turned him on to correct toes, which he finally got a pair. And he told me how in the past he had tried to transition. And he went from a uh, 12 millimeter heel drop shoe to a four really quickly. And he had a bunch of pain. So he's like, I can't do that again. And, uh, throughout the past couple of weeks of working with him, we worked on being barefoot a little bit more often. And then, um, we talked about, you know, just a slow transition. I was like, you know, let's go just walk for 20, 30 minutes in your, he went and got a four millimeter. And I was like, let's just go slow with that. And then I was like, then spend the rest of the time in your, in your regular shoe. And then you know, once you build that up, then let's start transitioning to being able to jog, you know, a quarter mile and then a half mile then a mile and then use your other shoes. And the last time I saw him, he's like, I ran seven miles in the four millimeter. And he's like, I'm ready to start, you know, going and getting a, like a Vivo barefoot or, or something that's even completely zero drop. And I was like, that's exactly how we want to do it. And it, the funniest thing too, is he's like, I'm so self-conscious now about all the, you know, advice I'm giving people. He's like, I don't think I can work at New Balance much anymore. And I was like, I'm Indeed. sorry, but that's, yeah, that's actually how it should be is that, you know, once you see the matrix, you can't unsee it, you know? It's true. Which brings up another interesting thing that I see here every day. Um, at first it surprised me. It no longer surprises me. So I tell people ahead of time, the other cool thing about um, once you eat the blue pill or I'm not sure which pill, <laughs> pill yeah, gives you the, whichever one it was the real reality. Yeah. Um, pe people never go back to their conventional shoes. Yeah. You know, and that's against not something I anticipated. They come in and they say, yeah, I'm feeling better, but I tried to put on my old shoe or whatever. And they also don't come back and ask for their orthotics back. You know, it's like once they've yep. gotten to that better place and they are functioning better, they don't go back, which is another kind of cool feature of all of this. That is really cool. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. It's been a good hour here for anyone else that wants to go down the rabbit hole like I did and learn more about uh, what you do and all the other amazing material that you have. Where can they, uh, where can they find that? Yeah, probably our, our Correct Toes website, www.correcttoes.com. Certainly we're on social media with like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and so forth. We also have a blog. We've got 99 videos on YouTube for people that like want to like do a quick little five minute on whatever they might have. Um, those are probably the best ways. Anybody close to Portland, Oregon, come visit us. We've got a shoe store here. We, we actively educate people for free. You know, if you want to come in and just have us look at your footwear, we don't charge for that. Um, and if COVID opens back up too, um, we travel a lot. We speak a lot at a lot of various venues. We'll be at outdoor retailer. We'll be at the running event. Um, so, but probably as far as uh, 
uh, education, the Correct Hills website would be the best probably. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I know it was a ton of awesome content out there, so everyone will really enjoy it. So everyone go out there and check out all that information on correctos.com. And uh, yeah, until next time, guys, happy squatting. All right, guys, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. For those of you out there that want to support the show and all the content that I make for Squat University, head on over to patreon.com slash squat university. While my day job as a doctor of physical therapy does help support some of the operational costs of creating content for Squat U, I would love to continue growing the brand so I can make better and better content for you guys. This is why I created a Patreon page that has different opportunities for you to support Squat U and even have some access to some live Q&A meetings with me once a month. Now, if you don't have any extra funds, really do not worry about it at all. My content will always remain free for you to help you decrease pain, move better, and optimize your performance in the gym. But if you would like to support my show, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. So just head on over to patreon.com slash University. Again, guys, thank you so much for checking out the show. I hope you're getting value from the content I'm continuing to put out. Um, until next time, guys, we'll talk then. Happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.